Well, we're in Revelation 13 again, and we're right in the thick of our study of one of the central chapters that people think about. When Revelation comes to mind, you've got the beast, you've got the Antichrist rising from the depths of the sea, you've got another beast that Revelation is going to call the false prophet coming up from the earth, you've got the mark of the beast, 666, that everybody talks about. There's a lot of stuff going on in this chapter, as you can tell by the journey we're taking to understand it all. And it's not been uncommon for me to cover in the sermon, only one point in the outline and then coming back to it the next week. But last week, I don't know if I set a record or anything, but I only covered half a point. And so we're going to do the other half of one point this morning. But, uh, you know, kudos to Paul Meyer when I mentioned that my battery was running low. He came up with a charging cord up here to, to make sure I was okay. So uh, uh, th- that just shows you his heart, you know. He's, uh, everybody else is like, oh, you're kidding me. But... Uh, But that's good. I appreciated that. So this morning, we're just going to keep plowing ahead. And remember, uh, before we read this chapter, uh, the beginning of it anyway, John calls what we're reading back in chapter 12, this this whole section, he calls it a sign. He calls it that twice. A sign is a picture, a symbol, here sort of a drama, that points to something else. It points to a greater reality. So, well, a lot of people say, we can't really understand Revelation. You know, you don't know what these terms mean and and, and so forth. John expects his readers in this part especially to interpret the sign. And he even gives us clues. He tells us what some of the signs mean. And that's what we have to be doing when we study the text in its biblical context. And that was what we, that's what we've been endeavoring to do. That's why sometimes we, we can't stay parked in this chapter. We've got to go other places in the Scripture because Scripture is our best commentary on Scripture. Now, in this part of the sign, the dragon that chapter 12 identifies as Satan, having failed in chapter 12 with every attempt, you remember, to devour the Lord Jesus Christ, to storm the very throne of heaven, to destroy God's chosen people, the Jews. Finally, Satan focuses his wrath on believers in Christ. And that is why, if you look at chapter 12, in verse 17, it says that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and, have the testi- and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's, that's believers that are going to come to Christ during this tribulation period. And it says, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And then in chapter 13, immediately it says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, out of the depths, out of the abyss, with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems, uh, diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast's that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it. So this dragon, Satan, is standing on the shore. And what is he doing? He's calling forth his champion to rise up and destroy believers in Christ who will be living during this time period that we refer to as the seven-year tribulation period. And because of this beast appearing 
to die and rise again. It seemed like he had a mortal wound and then it seemed like he came back to life. All the world worships it as if something like this has never happened before. Why is this hideous beast with these ten horns and these diadems on each horn, seven heads with features like a leopard and a lion and a bear? Why is this worshipped? What does this beast mean? What do the symbols mean? And last week, we identified this beast as a political figure. We spent most of our time in Daniel 7. Notice we, we finished Daniel this morning. We've been reading the last chapters of Daniel because they coincide with much of what Revelation is saying in this part of Revelation. We spent most of our time in Daniel chapter 7 where the prophet Daniel has a similar vision, not the same vision, but a similar vision of the same time period. And what we discovered is that the beast here in Revelation 13 is the last worldwide government, like Babylon, the lion, and Medo-Persia, the bear, and Greece, the leopard, and Rome, the hideous beast, the terrifying beast. The vision that God gave to Daniel warned that this day was coming. In other words, Satan's plan to raise up a political figure and to give him ability and a throne, that's a seat of government, and a vast political authority, and he will weaponize the government against all true believers. Does does that sound far-fetched to anyone? Is anyone thinking, oh, weaponize the government against believers? That could never happen. Because there are already governments weaponized against believers. Can you think of any governments that would actively seek to find where believers in Christ are worshiping and drag them away and put them in prison or kill them on the spot? We see it going on in front of our eyes right now. And their only crime, these people who are being hunted, is following and worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Why are Christians targeted in so many countries? I I, I mentioned this last week. It it should be a curiosity in our mind. Something's going on. It's not just random. I mean, I can understand random religious or political groups coming into government's crosshairs for one reason or another, and sometimes that happens. But when most of the persecution is historically and universally against those who embrace Christ... This indicates there's a mastermind behind it all. And if Revelation tells us anything, at least it identifies for us who this mastermind is. Since the beginning, he has been seeking to overthrow God's government over the world and to lead people made into, in God's image into rebellion against him. The first government that rebelled against the government that God had set up happened to be in the Garden of Eden. When our first parents, who were created to rule, let them have dominion, he said, both male and female, rule over the earth, manage it, they broke the command of God. The deception of Satan was at the heart of that rebellion. And ever after that, there has been a struggle between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. And this is not a new thesis. It goes all the way back at least to Augustine of Hippo and his famous work, The City of God, which maybe some of you have read or maybe have read some of it. 
The thesis of this book is that there has always been a war between God and the devil competing over control of territory on earth, and one day God's kingdom will prevail. And I will agree with this thesis as long as it is understood first that God is in constant control over the world. He has all the battle plans drawn up and he knows the parameters. And while Satan must always conduct his military operations within those parameters that God has established. And second, that there is not even a remote possibility that Satan will ever win. Yet throughout human history, Satan helps to orchestrate and encourage rebellion against God in the form of human government. Babel was a city based on false worship the first government we know of after the flood. And God responded by judging Babel, and then immediately he called Abram. Abram is God's answer to Babel. He called Abram and promised to make him a new nation, to bring a new government from him. And this is the government that will ultimately prevail when Christ sits on David's throne. But until then, governments will rise and they will oppose the God of heaven and his people. We read a little bit of that history in in Daniel 11 this morning as Andrew led us. Daniel 11 and 12. And what we're seeing in Revelation 13 is the last government that will be raised against God and Satan is at the heart of it. It's not a new thing. It's been going on all the time in one way or another. And we can unpack a lot of scripture, even in the Old Testament this morning, to, to demonstrate that. Now, why is Satan into nation building? Why does he want to build his own kingdom? And the answer is this. Satan always mimics and twists what God has created. He corrupts it for his own purposes. And last week, we saw that we have to be aware of this. We have to be on our guard. I'm unpacking the rest of Revelation 13, although I know we're not getting that far in the first two sermons. We're unpacking the rest of Revelation 13 under this thesis, that we have to be aware that Satan has a devious ploy to mimic and twist the person and work of God. In fact, we looked very carefully at Revelation 13, and we saw several examples of the devil unable to create anything new, simply producing a false version of God and his works in order to turn the hearts of the world toward him and to attempt to destroy anything good that God has created. And I reviewed them all last week, but I'll just talk about the first one this morning. Last week, we began to see that Satan mimics the kingdom of God. He mimics the kingdom of God. He sees what God originally intended, a world government with the worship of God at its center. And if Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have continued to worship God and they would have had children. And the garden would have expanded just like a homeschool family has to get a bigger minivan. And and it it would keep growing and growing. And pretty soon that garden would flourish and spread throughout the whole earth. And all the earth would be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord and be worshiping the Lord. Reminds us very much of what exactly we'll see when we get to Revelation uh, 21 and 22. The end is still going to be the same. But this didn't happen where righteousness flourished. Satan sought to create a different kingdom, a dictatorship, with himself at the center where unrighteousness would reign. And the reason it is essential that we understand Satan's program of mimicking and twisting God's will is not merely so that we understand what he is doing on a global scale, but also so that we can understand what he attempts to do in our own lives every day 
through his servants. He would like nothing better than to see us throw off God's authority and take control of our own lives, be the only one who is calling the shots, the only one who is running the show. We, we love that. We naturally, because of our fallenness, crave autonomy. And we get our lives into such a mess when we ignore and reject God's authority in our lives and decide to follow our own will instead rather than submitting to the Lord as subjects would submit to a loving king. So we study this text for wisdom about what is going on in the world and how to explain the governments that arise and the way they typically set themselves against the God of heaven. But we also study Satan's devices so that we can beware what he is attempting to do in our own lives. And we're not done yet trying to understand John's vision of Satan's kingdom. Last week, we found help from Daniel 7. This morning, I want you to turn to a different passage. It's a little closer. It's Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. So we're going to come to this again one of these years, but we will we'll be there you know, maybe in, in, a, in a couple of months. But I want to jump there because he talks about the beast here, the same beast. He has another vision of the beast. This is the third vision of the beast. The first one is in chapter 12. The second one is in chapter 13 that we're looking at right now. It, he comes again in chapter 17. And this time, John sees this corrupt woman riding on the beast. And he wants to know, what does this mean? We'll wait till we get to that chapter to talk about the woman's identity. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. But I want to look at what he is told about this beast in chapter or in verse 7 of 17, because this gives us better understanding. So starting in verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This is the beast from chapter 13. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. I already pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. Bottomless pit is probably here, just the abyss, the, the depths of the sea. Not every mention of abus, which is the Greek for abyss, is, is a reference to the bottomless pit. So uh, I don't know who translated this part of the ESV, but I'll, maybe I'll talk to him someday about this. And we'll have an argument. But anyway, the bottomless pit, commentators say the same things. So I'm just not sure why they went with this. But anyway, from the bottomless pit, from the abyss, and go to destruction. Right now, now think from John's perspective, the beast you saw was and is not. And he's telling John, this beast is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Not in the chronology of Revelation, but from John's perspective as he's listening to this prophecy in the island of Patmos. This is going to happen in the future, he says. Now, there's a formula here. You notice the beast is called was and is not. This is not the only time it's going to say this about him. And it no doubt refers to the fact that the beast receives a mortal wound. They all think he's going to die. And then he supposedly comes back to life. So he was, then he was not. And that's how he's referred to. And we'll continue to see that. And I'll, I'll say more about that next week, actually, because that's going to come up under the, the second reason that we need to beware of Satan. But I want you to keep reading. He says, All the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. In other words, the beast who appeared to die, he was and is not, and then he comes back to life. And so far, we're tracking with exactly what John says in chapter 13. There are no surprises. Everything we've seen, we've seen before. But now the angel gives John some additional information about this beast. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. The the heads stand for two things, mountains and kings. Five of whom have fallen. One is, and again, this is John's perspective. So, So five have already fallen from John's perspective. One is reigning right now. The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, what are these mountains and who are these kings or these rulers represented by the, seven, by the seven heads? Well, the city of Rome is famously said to have been built on seven hills. And if the seven heads are also seven kings, it's possible that some of these heads are Roman emperors and that five of them have already passed off the scene from John's perspective and one of them is right now in the time of John and the last is still to come. But a mountain can also simply stand for a kingdom. That's the way the word mountain is often used in the ancient world, especially because cities were self-contained governments and you would put the high place of the city, would be, it would be the place you'd want to protect most, which would be where the top temples were and where the, where the government was. So mountains were governments. And in fact, some of you might be familiar with Isaiah's description of the coming kingdom in Isaiah 2. Isaiah uses the idea of mountain to represent the government of the Lord. Look at this. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. He's not saying here Jerusalem is the highest mountain of all the other mountains geographically, but it will be the highest seat of government. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This is what's going to happen in chapter 20 of Revelation when the kingdom is established. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the kingdom that God will set up. It will be a kingdom of peace. But Satan's twisted version of this kingdom is assembled for war. War against the true king. So the seven heads of the beast in John's vision, whether they refer historically to Rome or at least to uh, mountains and governments and their rulers, at least that's what they're referring to. The the mountains, the governments, the rulers themselves. So the seven heads are seven governments, maybe the same government with different rulers, but they're governments none the same. Now, how does the beast itself fit into this? Now, this is a verse 11. Now, let me look at this carefully. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. An eighth what? An eighth head. An eighth king and government is what he's saying. But it belongs to the seven. In other words, it's in the lineup. And it goes to destruction. Seven rulers rise up and fall but the beast himself is another ruler. He's an eighth head. Now, he, he's the beast, but he's an eighth head. The eighth mountain of government. The final human government over the world. And verse 12 says, The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, from John's perspective, 
but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour or for a little bit of time together with the beast. So these are kings that are going to rise up to power during the time of this beast. So now we know that the horns of the beast are rulers and they'll be functioning during the tribulation period with the beast serving him. So the seven heads are representative of the fact that Satan is always raising up governments throughout all of human history and the beast is the last one. The horns stand for those who are going to help him at this time to rule. So verse 13 says, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. He jumps to the end of the story here. The lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. Revelation doesn't go on very long about darkness in the prophecy without reminding us who's really in charge. And this is one of those places he jumps back in and just reminds us what the end of the story is. So once again, the beast is a political authority with great power. And the interpretation of him in chapter 17 helps us to get this clearer picture. So if I were to summarize it all, this beast is the last ruler of a kingdom in a long line of kingdoms. And we know this because the seven heads or the seven mountains or governments rule over by seven kings, some of whom have already passed the scene in John's day. And verse 11 says that the beast is the last of these rulers. He's the eighth and final one. And the ten horns and rulers in the world that will serve the beast and swear allegiance to him are in the tribulation period. Now, who are these rulers? These ten horns, what countries do they represent? Well, I have no idea. And I would not speculate, but I want you to think about the fact that in today's world, the ten superpower governments, according to last year's rankings in order, are the United States, China, Russia, Germany, the UK, Japan, France, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates. Those are considered the 10 leading government superpowers. But I want you to think about something. We've been in Revelation for a while. We've seen all the judgments that have come. Remember, Revelation is called time out on the judgments because God is showing us what's happening in the world while all these judgments are coming. And so after all the judgments begin to come upon the earth, the wars and famine and disease and the waters being corrupted, the vegetation burning and millions of people dead. What countries are going to be left as the 10 superpowers standing in that day? We know Jerusalem isn't going to be struck because it's standing during the whole tribulation period. The geographical center of God's plan and his kingdom is not in our hemisphere. It's in Jerusalem's hemisphere. This side of the world, I hate to say this, can be completely wiped out and it would have no bearing whatsoever on what God says is going to happen in the last days with world governments and his people, Israel. And in that time, God is going to allow Satan to call forth a champion government. And the devil believes that this government will finally be able to conquer and replace God's coming kingdom. And it will be ruled over by this beast, this political figure, the eighth head that the other governments of the world will bow down to and serve. That's his plan. And the word reminds us this is not going to happen. But he wants it to happen. Now, 
with this in mind, there's one final passage I want you to look at briefly that sheds light on the identity of this ruler who is to come and what he does. We're going to go back to Paul's epistle, Second Thessalonians. So we, we've looked at the Old Testament. We've looked in the book of Revelation itself for context. Now we're looking at one of Paul's epistles that he's writing to people who are really wondering what is going to go down in the last times. The Thessalonians were really curious about some things Paul said about the end times, and they want to know the details. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've seen the description of this ruler in Revelation 13, and we ought to appreciate what Paul says in this letter. The Thessalonian believers are upset because Paul had told them Christ is going to return for them, that they would be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 5. And they'd be with those who had already died knowing Jesus Christ. And they would ever after that be with the Lord. And they, that should comfort them. And this is what we read in 1 Thessalonians. But apparently someone was messing with them. Writing to them to tell them, you know, the day of the Lord has already begun. And, and thing, bad things are about to happen. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. And the world enters after that rapture into this time period of intense spiritual darkness and judgment that we've been reading about in Revelation. And, and somebody had written to them to say, that day has already come. And, and bad things are going to start happening to you. And Paul writes to tell them, no, 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 it's true that things are dark now, but this is not the end, not yet. You haven't seen anything yet. Because if it were the last days, certain events would be unfolding. So let's read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Look at this, uh, starting in verse 1, chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, which He talked about in 1 Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, in other words, a rumor going on, or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. By the way, at the end of... Second Thessalonians, this is where Paul says, you see the large letters I'm writing with my own hands? This is what I do at the end of my letter. It's my seal of, of authenticity. This is the way I write, he says. And he says that at the end of Second Thessalonians and some of his other letters too, uh, because they, he, they, he wants to make sure they know it's from him. He's going to be very careful now to, to sign his letters that way. Because somebody else is writing his letter. That's the way they would, they would write letters back then. And Paul takes the stylus and he writes his own uh, ending. So that he doesn't want to be shaken by these letters anymore, saying the day of the Lord has come. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. In other words, a worldwide time of intense spiritual darkness and rebellion against God and the Lamb. I think we see the throes of it in our world. I don't think we understand the depth of the darkness yet. And not only the darkness, but the, la the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this man of lawlessness, by the way he is described, has to be none other than the beast in Revelation 13 and the little horn that we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 7. Paul doesn't say that the world will know who he is before the rapture takes place. Some people read that into here. That's, that, he doesn't mention that even. 
he says that we will know that the day of the Lord is upon us when we start seeing things like this happen, when there's this intense spiritual darkness and this man of lawlessness comes to the fore and begins to take political control. Until then, he says, this time has not yet come. Do you remember, he says in verse 5, that when I was still with you, I, I told you these things? And he says, yeah, I explained this to you already. And you know what is restraining him now, that he may be revealed in his time. What is restraining this man, this ruler, from coming right now? What's holding Satan back in standing on the shore and calling the beast forward right now? Some say that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit holding Satan in check for the time being, not allowing his worldwide government to form until God is ready for that to happen. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, Satan would begin his kingdom now if he could. I think the Third Reich is an example of how Satan can raise up a kingdom right in the middle of, every, right in the middle of a people who historically have followed God's word. He can do it. And God says, no, it's not time. People say, well, was Hitler the Antichrist? No, he was an Antichrist. Very definitely, by definition from Scripture, and Satan probably wanted him to be the Antichrist, but he's not. God's not ready for this to happen yet. Satan is ever waiting to raise up this champion whom John refers to in Revelation 13 as the beast. Only, Paul says, he who now restrains it will do so until he, the one who restrains, is taken out of the way. And again, perhaps he means the Holy Spirit holding Satan back until the Spirit steps out of the way and allow Satan to do his work. I don't know for sure that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's my, I'll go along with that, okay? Um, There's a lot of debate about what that means, but God is in control of holding it back somehow. And we would not be surprised to know that it is the Holy Spirit doing that. So he says in verse eight, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom in the end the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, Revelation 19. Now, notice verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. That's Revelation 13 right there. And with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. This is part of the judgment so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is Satan's kingdom that he desires to set up. Satan gives to this beast, this ruler, his power and throne and authority so that he can encourage deception and a hatred for truth. His kingdom, Satan's kingdom, is characterized by blasphemies against God rather than love for God. The universal worship of Satan rather than the Lamb. Rather than a place of peace and harmony for those who love Jesus Christ, this kingdom is a place where those who do not love the beast and take his mark, those who are faithful to Christ, will be hunted and killed. That's the kind of twisted kingdom Satan wants to raise up. In other words, you take the paradise that God originally created with God, the loving creator and his creatures as obedient, trusting children, and you find the exact opposite of that. And you have the kind of kingdom Satan would build. He mimics, he twists, he destroys, he corrupts. 
He doesn't create anything new. He didn't come up with the idea of authority. God did. Authority was created by God. Satan mimics it and twists it. The antithesis can only be described, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. Now, who would lead a kingdom like that? Who is the beast? Who is this man of lawlessness? What would be a fitting name for him? I think there's no doubt that this person is the one that John describes in his letters. 1 John 2, 1 John 1, 2 John verse 7. And I'm going to look at just the first of those chapters before we're finished this morning. So turn one more time, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 18. Listen to what John says here. Children, it is the last hour. John most likely doesn't know there's going to be 2,000 years of church age. Every generation knows this is the, about to happen. This is the end. It's going to happen soon. But he says, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is a reason that we refer to the ruler in chapter 13 that Satan will raise up as the Antichrist. The terminology comes from John's letters, not from his prophecy. When we read the letters of John, we discern that this must have been the name the church was giving to this man of lawlessness that Paul the apostle talks about and that John saw through his vision on the island of Patmos in Revelation. It's the anti-Christ, that little word anti in Greek or anti in English. You see it in dozens of words, like antithesis, the exact opposite of something. If you're poisoned by snake venom, you get the anti-venom, the opposite of the venom. And this sounds really good to me if I were to get bit by a snake. And, 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 and until then, I stay as far away as I possibly can. If you have antipathy towards something, you have an aversion to it. You stay away from it. You have an extreme dislike for it. Antipathy. In literature, something that is anticlimactic is the opposite of the climax. It's, it's kind of a letdown. And the anti-hero is the guy in the story who is the opposite of the hero. He's lazy, he doesn't have courage, and he's actually a complete loser. That's the anti-hero in the story. In Greek, the little prefix anti has the same effect Antichrist is the exact opposite of Christ. Completely different in kind and character and intent and ability in every conceivable way. But remember my overall thesis of this chapter, we have to beware, we must beware of Satan's devious ploy to mimic and twist the person and work of God. Revelation 13 is not given by the Lord to John for our academic knowledge or to satisfy our curiosity about the future. The whole book of Revelation is designed to strengthen and encourage believers, but to caution us at the same time. Notice John's language again in verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And if it is the last hour in John's day, guess what? It's still the last hour today as well. In other words, we are living in the time right before the end. The church has always been living in that time period. 
Why does God wait? He is merciful. He wants to save more people from this time period that's coming. And what characterizes this age that we're living in? What characterizes this age? I want you to notice something very interesting here in John. His emphasis is not as much on the fact that the Antichrist is coming. I mean, notice he sort of mentions that in the clause. But that many Antichrists have come already. That's his main emphasis here. And this characterizes the time we are living in. In other words, just as Satan will finally be allowed to raise up his antithetical kingdom in the tribulation period, he is always trying to raise it up now. And through the great rebellion, it will finally come. But for right now, through many smaller, multiple rebellions. These include rulers or false teachers or influences that do not exalt the person of Christ, but they draw our focus away from Christ so that other people and things are honored rather than him. In other words, he's going to do this on a minimal scale right now as God allows him because he's trying to always do it. In fact, some of you may already recognize the context of this verse in John's letter. Did that occur to anybody? It comes right after a passage that you are probably familiar with. I'm going to put that passage up there, and verse 18 will be at the end. Do you recognize these verses? Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, loving the Father and loving the world are polar opposites. They are the antithesis of one another. And John explains why. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And no kidding. I mean, John could have done a little advertisement for Revelation here, you know. He's going to show us how it's passing away. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then he says, children, this is the last hour. It's passing away. And this is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. The idea is there are forces in the world driven by Satan and his followers who are pushing us toward an antithetical life where we do not choose the desires of the Lord and aim to exalt him but rather we choose the desires of our own flesh and our eyes and aim to exalt ourselves. This is the fall of Eve all over again. Genesis 3, 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the desires of the flesh, and that it was delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. In fact, that was the big thing that Satan was tempting her with. He didn't even mention the other two. She figured that out on her own. She took of the fruit and ate. And we have to beware because we who would shudder at the thought of committing our lives to the beast, to the Antichrist, unwittingly obey Satan's greatest desire when we repeat the fall by feeding our flesh and feeding our eyes and feeding our pride from what the world offers. In fact, at the moment when we give into our desires that are antithetical to what our Lord and Savior wants for us, we are not yearning for the kingdom of God to come. Rather, we are still helping Satan build his kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening in on a Sunday school lesson that John Bott was teaching 
to the college students. He didn't know I was in the hallway. I confessed afterwards listening. But some of the, some of the things he was saying caught my ears. And he, he made the point, I don't, I don't think I'm quoting him word for word here, but he made the point, one of the truest indicators of your walk with the Lord that, is that you, are, that, that you are truly submitted to him. One of the indicators that you're truly submitted to him, uh, that you're trying to follow him, is how you respond to the authority that God places in your life. Because authority, you extrapolate it, ultimately you get to a kingdom. And he went on to say, and I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth this morning, that when he looks back on many believers he has known, it seems that submission to authority is a common theme among those who are trying to walk with God. They're struggling to do it. They might not do it perfectly. None of us do. But they're struggling to walk with him. They're trying to live for the Lord. And, and, and they, they are getting along with their authority. But the ones who don't are struggling with authority. And you can see that very clearly, by the way, at a Christian college or university, if you've ever heard of one. There are some Christian young adults who would never go to a school like that because of what? All the rules. Now, that can be fair. I mean, nobody says you have to go to school where they have a lot of rules. But some would never go by principle to a place like that because they don't like living with authority. Someone telling them what to do. They hate that. They're always thinking of ways to create the space in their lives to do whatever they want to do with no one able to point a finger at them or call them out for it. Some young adults get fed up with authority altogether. I can't believe all the rules my parents make me live under. I'm done with this. I'm out of here. I'm going to go join the Marines. (laughs) Good luck with that. And and we laugh at that, but you know what? We're always going to go out from one authority and we're going to be under another authority because God has created the world with authority. We can't escape it because it's the way God made things. Satan takes it and twists it. And I hope you realize by now you will never be out from under authority. It's not a matter of whether or not you will be under authority. It's a matter of how you will respond to the authority. Will you obey it? And he was making the point, people who seem to get along with authority as a believer have a bigger view of what God is doing in the world. And they're submissive to it. Because God created a world in which he asserted his authority and promised that blessing will follow if we obey him. And when Satan rebelled because he's a creature and cannot conceive of anything new or different, he could only mimic and corrupt God's authority. He could only give God's creatures an alternative version to the authority that was already created. That is why it's not really authority itself we struggle with. It's it's which authority we will obey that we struggle with. Are we going to help Satan in his nation building? Or will we bow to our creator and truly pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? As I said, we have to beware. This is not just information for us to know what the last days are going to be like. This teaches us the way we should walk with Christ now. And so by God's grace, let's beware the false kingdoms and the false Christs being set up all around us and let's honor and serve our King who will one day reign forever and ever. Father, we're...